This is Linux in Laws, a podcast on topics around free and open source software, any associated contraband, communism, the revolution in general, and whatever else fancies your tickle. Please note that this and other episodes may contain strong language, offensive humor, and other certainly not politically correct language. You have been warned. Our parents insisted on this disclaimer. Happy mum! Thus, the content is not suitable for consumption in the workplace, especially when played back on a speaker in an open-plan office or similar environments. Any minors under the age of 35 or any pets, including fluffy little killer bunnies, your trusted guide dog, unless on speed, and cute T-Rexes or other associated dinosaurs. Welcome to Links In-Laws, Season 1. Martin, what is it? Episode 2557, if I'm not completely mistaken. Ooh, Maybe I'm wrong. Uh, yeah, I don't think we're quite that, that far yet, but it's close. It's close enough. Yep. We're recording this in the year 2079, I think. <laughs> Clouds have taken over the world. The war is at rest for the time being anyway. And Which gas one? supplies yeah. have been restored. <laughs> Sorry, yes. Martin, that's a fair question. We will go into that in a okay, minute. Okay. <laughs> gas supplies have been restored in the US and elsewhere. Martin, how are things over in the UK now that the mm. daughter of, was it called uh, William, right? It wasn't George. Harry, but William now has been enthroned once again. As in, we now have Elizabeth IV. Reigning the kingdom, if I'm not completely mistaken. Oh, I see. All right. So, 20 cents. Um, I'm not sure there's any Elizabeth grandchildren, actually. Hmm. I don't know what the names are. I don't, I'm not, I, I don't keep up to date with these things. Ah, I'm afraid. Hang on. I thought you were the royalist of the two of us. Well, probably slightly more than you are. I mean, as we, as probably the most of our listeners know, Elizabeth II died in 2022, but a lot of things have have happened since then. But this is not a show about royalists, and no jokes aside, people, we are recording this in 2022, and I'm more than happy to welcome Taylor Do Dolezal, I hope I didn't, I didn't butcher your name, Taylor, to the show. No, this. He is one of the main people at, the, at something called Cloud Native Computing Foundation, but he will introduce himself in a, right, right now. So, Taylor, the floor is yours. Awesome, awesome. Thank you all so much for, for having me. Uh, yeah, I'd, when you said the, that we would gather the royal we, I was, I was very excited. Um, so, so howdy, everybody. My name is Taylor Dolezal. I'm the head of ecosystem at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation, though that is very difficult to put on a conference badge. So I usually just put CNCF. Uh, very happy to chat more with all of you today. I'm mostly focused on helping people get oriented when it comes to their cloud native journeys and figuring out, you know, uh, what, what is the cloud? What is it for you? And Taylor, before we go into the details, um, especially a little, probably a little bit of the history of the CNCF, for these two listeners out there who are, A, not familiar with, any, with somebody else's computers, as in the cloud, as in other people's computers. And needless to say, also very importantly, this CNCF, maybe you can kind of position this into a little bit of context, especially when you're to something called the Linux Foundation? 
Yes. So the CNCF was born out of the donation of Kubernetes from Google to the Linux Foundation. And that was that was really what started off the, the CNCF. That was one of the first projects in there. And the goal of the CNCF is to make cloud native ubiquitous, which, you know, what does that mean? That means to really help enable cloud just about everywhere. Um, we we are platform agnostic, we're vendor neutral, and really just a great place for folks to gather and talk about how to implement these things, share best practices, uh, and work together to build the future. So it's really, really a fun place to work and, and to be. And there are just so many people involved, which is something that I, I feel very, uh, very excited about uh, in my day to day. And what's your background, if you don't mind the question? Where do you come from? Yeah, so uh, probably come... the U.S., I suppose. <laughs> yes, yes. A, uh, uh, if we go way far back, uh, Columbus, Ohio is. Uh, so I am a, a child of the corn, as as many of my friends have pointed out. Uh, I grew up in Cleveland. I, I started off my career in software engineering and software development, and then moved through various phases, working at multiple throughout m- multiple verticals and really finding a home when it came to infrastructure. I owned my own company for a while and was writing code and and software. And somebody asked that inevitable question, you know, hey, I like this code, this this program is great, but how do I deploy it? How how do we run this? How can I access this when it's not on your machine? And it was through a series of of trials, tribulations, and, and successes that I was able to really get into software or systems engineering and and putting software uh, into a larger infrastructure in a distributed system and really never looked back from there. I worked within, uh, m- more recently, the Cleveland Clinic uh, Hospital, working on neurological functions, uh, for everything from Parkinson's to multiple sclerosis to to um, uh, just several other things there. Uh, going from there to Disney, that's where I jumped out to the West Coast. I worked within Disney, Disney. Studios and... Yeah, okay. it was uh, wow. learned learned the value of a good story there, and uh, it really was the most magical place on earth when all of your DNS was working. And then after that, uh, joined HashiCorp as a developer advocate, and then finally landed here at the Cloud Native Computing Foundation as the head of ecosystem. Given the fact that the Linux Foundation, and correct me if I'm wrong, is probably one of those influential industry bodies shaping the direction of open source in an enterprise context, never mind. It's the time to explain a little bit about the history of the Linux Foundation, if, 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 you, if you can, that is, and, all, and also how the CNCF came into play after the Linux Foundation was founded. Yeah. So, so one thing. So, I've I've tracked more of the CNCF history. I'm I'm a lot more aware of that. Just kind of getting uh, getting started a little bit later in my life around like twenty. I think it was 2011, 2012, uh, Tracking things like Docker and containers and and really just open source in general. You know, watching uh, .NET come about and and seeing the open sourcing of the .NET framework, all of those things. That's really where I'm, I'm well dialed in. The Linux Foundation is a little bit before my career time. And so I'm vaguely aware of some of the big developments there, but really was just interesting to see how that organization came about to really foster these open source things. I think that really the, the too long didn't read version is that looking at what Jem Zemlin and, and many others have done within the organization, 
uh, the Linux Foundation, it was great to see that they understood the need to really capture and, and, and foster that community for Linux in ways that they saw other organizations doing, like Microsoft was for, for .NET, like Oracle was for databases, like you know, MySQL and, and Java and all of these other organizations really had places in which to forge, connect, and, and make all of these, all of their platforms and, and tools meaningful to people. That was really the goal of the Linux Foundation. And they've done so well at connecting folks and crafting those foundations that we can really get together and have that united focus on things. It's not too broad in most cases. It's not too selective in most cases. It's it's just really trying to find that Goldilocks uh, ratio, you know, the just right. This this works for us. Yeah, I know that, uh, you know, <laughs> make sure the porridge isn't too cold or too hot. That's, uh, yeah, interesting bit of history there. Um, I mean, uh, when people mention uh, have or have been mentioning cloud, and, and usually it's it's in, in one sentence, Kubernetes is mentioned in the same sentence, right? Is that something that um, you would say is, or you want to expand on? I mean, other kind of opinions around, let's say, say cloud native or, or the, the public clouds, of course. So, um, do you want to put a bit more kind of uh, shed a bit more light on what your organization is trying to do in in well one is it synonymous with Kubernetes, which some people um, may may kind of agree on because clearly with cloud native we're trying to put everything in containers um, and then yeah the other in the other side sometimes cloud native is mentioned in in sentence of um, uh, native on one of the public ones, right? So what is your opinion on that one? And if I can interrupt that, that kind of thought, Martin, because uh-huh. it's, it's funny because you are the, the more hipster type <laughs> of the two of us. So, and uh, you see, be, before, before, before Taylor does ask that, maybe Taylor, you can explain a little bit about what cloud native in this context means, because I reckon that some of our listeners are almost as old as I am, and given the fact that I'm really old, now's the time to explain a little bit of this. It'd be good stories. to hear um, yeah, Taylor's opinion, because it's, it's, as I said, lots of people mention it in lots of different contexts, right? So yes. it could be many things. Of, of course, yeah. And no, it's, and arguably, it's great to have your head in the clouds. I know that my parents told me, you know, it might be a bad thing, but obviously uh, it's, it's, it's worked wonders. What, what about your software? Uh, the so so with with CNCF and, and cloud native and all of these concepts, it's it is really interesting. I've had many great conversations with folks. Uh, we, we've defined cloud native as a foundation, and it is really helping out uh, workflows that run in containers. But we're seeing that start to change with things like WebAssembly coming about. And uh, there are other tenants where, you know, focusing on microservices and other things. But truly, it, it's my belief and, and thought that when you start to track these different interfaces and architectural patterns of how you go and you implement these, these various tasks, you know, you have to answer the question, what am I trying to do? Is it book a reservation? Is it play a music track? whatever your business or your vertical is trying to do, that's, you know, likely that's that's what you're trying to do. And cloud native allows for all these various workflows to be possible to work. 
Um, and so that's, that's, that's one thing I think is just really important to realize is when we say cloud native, it's truly those architectural patterns and these interfaces that you deal with, whether it's, you know, the cloud, uh, 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 storage interface, open container uh, spec, all of those kinds of things. When you start to track those specifications, it becomes a lot easier to work as different projects together. You know, if you have Kubernetes set up and you want to figure out your continuous integration or deployment pipelines, you can use Argo, you can use Flux. All of those things work because they have the proper levels of abstraction in which to interact with. That's one of the key benefits of working within this space and this ecosystem. And and one thing I've seen, too, is that as these projects get worked on, they'll go through their various seasons. Folks will get really interested or start to drive towards certain features or certain areas of Kubernetes, uh, maybe not even Kubernetes core itself, but other projects like Prometheus, uh, like Argo, OpenTelemetry. And then we'll start to see, you know, interest move over here, move. And so it's really important to take a look at the ecosystem as a whole in terms of its growth, too, because to uncover and realize problems and work together through them, we'll see, you know, not everybody stays in the same space with the same focus, which I think is really interesting. This really allows you to uncover different parts of the stack and uh, not time working or, or, or focus on just one thing. It's, it's really a great learning opportunity. Yeah, so so I guess um, are we? You mentioned architectural patterns. Do you mean at that kind of high level, or are we talking about specific uh, ways to build applications? Um, if we uh, think back uh, a little bit, I don't know maybe I don't know, six, seven years, um, there was a, a a product that came out called uh, Cloud Foundry, which um, had you know, that sort of premise of, of building modern applications with standard building blocks and so on. Um, is that something that you are trying to uh, achieve as well? Or is it more uh, the Cloud Native Foundation's um, purpose to, uh, let's say, recommend um, certain projects that are uh, suitable for um, application development? Is, is that your role as a Definitely, definitely. I would okay. say I would say more that that latter point because, as a foundation, we are looking to elevate the voices and standings from the community. We aren't looking to be we aren't looking to choose the winners or say, "Hey, this project is the only way to do things." We're that's that's what we're trying to foster and really uh, be good stewards within all of these projects is. Um, you know, giving people the platform in which to talk about this or show the data as they go about adapting using these projects, things won't always be straightforward. And so this also is a good place for people to come together and, and share what is working, what is not working. Um, there are several times where we've been asked to provide recommended architectures or, you know, please give me this such that I can have that one size fits all way to go about implementing these various patterns or workflows within my organization. And we come back to those folks and say, like, uh, we, we don't want to do that because of that. You know, we don't want to pick the winner. This is a very neutral space. And but if you have figured it out, let's talk about your stack. Let's share a case study. 
and be able to kind of help people understand how, you know, organization X or Y does this thing. And then people will take that and then be able to either build up that or suggest some changes, figure out other ways in which to run their workflows, if that makes sense. Oh, it does indeed. And that's a very interesting train of thought. Changing attack a little bit, taking a look at the website, I see quite a few prestigious projects, for want of a better expression, having now the graduate leaders, probably something called Borg, when it was still a Google project, now known as Carbonitis, probably being the best example. Maybe you can shed some more light on a typical project lifestyle. Uh, life cycle at the CNCF and especially how projects do apply and what the overall vetting procedure is, if you can speak about this. Of course. Yeah, no, that is a fantastic point to, to draw at. The So when it comes to uh, the CNCF projects, we have these various levels of uh, whether it's it's able to be implemented within your enterprise, your organization. So to kick things off, we have Sandbox, which is really just yeah, training wheels in a trial period for that project and for the CNCF. It's a, you know, it's a, a, a really just a place for folks to get an understanding of what services the Linux Foundation and CNCF offer to project. Um, there's no IP transferal or anything at that point in time. Though when you move into incubating, that's when the IP and everything else become property of the Linux Foundation, such that we can defend you from a legal standpoint, which is also really important. Uh, my, uh, I when I joined the foundation, that was really what opened my eyes. I, I most uh, open source projects aren't uh, people don't go after that, but really seeing uh, patent trolls and, and other other entities that were you know ensuing in, in litigation was just I, I just was not aware about uh, until getting to to work inside the foundation, and so we want to allow for these projects to be successful and have a good foundation and, and it's a pun intended to to build everything on. So I think that that's that's really helpful. And then finally, we have that graduated state, which means this is absolutely ready. We've had multiple organizations adopt these tools, create workflows. We're confident this is something that you will feel safe using and is resilient. Um, when it comes to onboarding those projects, selecting which ones get to Sandbox and how they move up through incubating and then get to graduated, that's our technical oversight committee which is made up of folks that have been elected throughout the community, whether it be our governing board, whether it be our end user members. End users are folks that uh, use and consume these projects, but they don't kind of package them up and resell them. You know, it wouldn't be an Amazon or, or GCP or, or Azure because they like Kubernetes. They'll take that package and resell that. Um, the, the end users are more folks that, uh, like Apple, Boeing, American Express, Coinbase, Fidelity, Intuit, folks like that that are using cloud-native projects within their core business and then uh, able to kind of give some feedback around how they use these projects and, and, and all of those folks really help out the community with able to share. Um, the, the Technical Oversight Committee drives the technical direction of our foundation. And so we have a lot of uh, folks have a lot of conversations with them directly from a technical standpoint, obviously, uh, you know, that, that being the T in the name. And 
they they help offer guidance or say no this project isn't ready you know in that case they'll try to resubmit in like six months and uh, they're just really good stewards of the community uh, from a technical standpoint and that has been very insightful taylor and what are the requirements for a project to enter or to apply for and I'm especially thinking about say for example licensing terms because at the end of the day licensing a license a particular license actually drives reusability adoption all the rest of it never mind the surrounding requirements that you may or may not impose as in when i say you of course i mean the cncf that you may or may not impose on a project so the point that I'm driving at, I, I actually, have you have you any particular requirements in terms of licensing, code maturity, and all of it uh, that you require before a project can even enter or take a look at this lifecycle? Yes. So there is. So there there aren't any restrictions in terms of like, hey, I've got a project. Let me submit this. Um, so there is nothing holding you back from opening up a, a ticket and applying to have your project be accepted in that initial sandbox state. Though it does help, uh, like uh, I've heard funny stories where uh, some people have submitted vaporware that, uh, that, <laughs> that makes it very hard to get it accepted. Uh, you won't get accepted. Um, you know, Seriously? things that, yeah, wow. yeah, absolutely. So, so it's, uh, so there is nothing stopping you, but you know, it's, it's the same thing like a GitHub issue. Anyone can file an issue on most open source projects, but it helps to, clarify and define it. And just to make it easier, you know, if you help out your uh, TOC representatives that are working through those tickets, it's going to be an easier time for you and for them as well. So that's, that's really my recommendation on uh, focusing on that, you know, write something, uh, submit as much information as possible that will allow for them to be helpful. And it goes, and it really truly goes both ways. The um, so so we've seen some things like that where vaporware has been been submitted, but the projects that do the best, um, we have a list of due diligence items on the TOC repository under the CNCF organization on GitHub. So there is like a, a exhaustive list and to do checklist as far as things to take a look at. Um, so there are no there are no set things in terms of like you must have this many GitHub stars or anything like that. It really is a lot more. Um, subjective in some parts, the things where it is a little bit more uh, quantitative are like around like things like you said, the licensing. If it's something with a closed source license, it's it's not going to have a good chance of getting accepted. And uh, you know there are there's always exceptions to the rule, but the the process itself is really subjective in terms of looking at the community, um, making sure that folks have uh, been clearing out issues and that this project is well maintained it's it's alive it's well it's and it's a thriving ecosystem um so that's in terms of proposing a project the the thing that becomes it becomes a little bit clearer as you go through the various levels of maturity like when you're going to incubating or graduated status there the ask is to show examples of organizations that use your project and kind of interview them get their thoughts and and have them share about what their experience is so it's really i i'm a biased of course but i really like how the toc goes about showing that they've done due diligence in each of these ways and showing that the project is useful and you know, folks are happy to talk about it when it's when it's genuinely useful. And I'm just wondering if you could chat some more technical light maybe on 
the metrics that the CNCF uses for to pass from one stage to another. So, say for, so for example, when does when does the CNCF see a project fit that it can move from sandbox to incubator stage, or even to finally graduate it or something like this? Do you so, have with the various fix fix and, and hard metrics for this, or is it kind of a voting process, or do how do you go about this? So with the various stages, it's it's up to the project to determine like, okay, I, I think that we're ready to go to the next level and then to make that, to apply at that point in time. Um, when something is in sandbox state, there's that annual review process to kind of see, is this still worth having in a sandbox state? Really just, just to kind of help encourage that proper uh, software management lifecycle, right? There are some things that it, it can stay in sandbox indefinitely, though we obviously want to help projects uh, move up the chain or decide that, okay, you know, maybe this isn't right. We, we want to promote that motion. We don't want, we, we are declarative folks and we don't want something to stay there indefinitely if it doesn't, you know, if it doesn't have to. Um, that's, that's not a good life cycle. Things are stuck there permanently. Um, everything has its time, its place, its season, etc. Uh, you know, I, th I think that that shows in in the in our organization, and those those are my personal beliefs too. Uh, we should see things uh, move along consistently, and put in good measures in which to, um, you know, to, to see that happen. When it comes to metrics, there aren't any things that we have explicitly, like, again, you know, whether it's GitHub stars or uh, contributors or, or companies, we don't have anything set for like, okay, three companies use this, it's time to go uh, to the next level, though the communities are very good at, you know, raising up that those voices in terms of saying, hey, is this, <laughs> uh, I, I think one of my favorite issues on just about every popular open source project is, is this project still alive? Is this still okay? I, I've seen that across, you know, things like Terraform, Kubernetes, and other things. It's just uh, funny for me to see that when when uh, folks might not have their PR answered or, or issue taken care of just yet. But um, it's, uh, really nice to have. So, so we have something called DevStats, which uh, anyone can take a look at, devstats.cncf.io. And that is something that allows you to drill into each of these projects, see what countries are using them, see what companies uh, 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 have people that are contributing back to these projects. And even if someone is independent, for example, say their organization doesn't allow them to participate in open source unless it's on their own personal time, there are so many people that take you know, time out of their day, their evenings, their mornings, uh, their, their time off during lunch, you know, their personal time, their personal uh, equipment and networks to go and to contribute to these projects. It's really astounding to see. And um, you can see, you know, uh, when folks are contributing as well. It's good to see that most folks are taking the weekends off. You know, you see a little bit of a dip then. So it makes me happy to see that the people are uh, experiencing a good work-life balance. It's imp so important to do in the open source community because there's not many people telling you to take a break. Um, so, and, and burnout is, is, is far too common. So really great to see folks prioritizing their time there. But DevStats is definitely one of the cool things within our ecosystem that is that anyone can take a look at. You know, we, we aren't looking to hide data. We're looking to be open and transparent about all these things to drive that progress and allow for really nice feedback loops for people to do meaningful things with. 
I, I was looking at Def Stats now that you mentioned it. It's, it's quite interesting that it's using uh, Postgres as a database. But, um, on that subject, um, uh, I mean, clearly you have a lot of projects that cover similar part of the architecture, right? Or, or you have, let's say, uh, graduated many projects that cover the same parts of the architecture. Um, I mean, the whole uh, CNCF cloud native landscape is pretty complex, right? It's, or complex. There are many different parts to it, uh, databases, front-end, um, uh, DNS, uh, et cetera, et cetera, proxy technologies, all sorts of different types of technologies, fine. Um, but there is a certain overlap, right? So, you, for example, if we take the database example, we got MySQL, we got Postgres. Um, and so do you, as, a, as an organization, make try and make life easier for people to navigate that landscape as well? And if so, how do you do that? Yeah, absolutely. So the uh, so yes, it's it's my goal. So if you take a look at the landscape, the CNCF landscape, I, I've mm. seen you know many many jokes made about it, just how <laughs> okay. overwhelming it is. Really, the secret is just the uh, I think it's Command or Control minus, and then you just keep hitting that until it fits in your browser. That's that's the solution. <laughs> uh, <laughs> the, uh, <laughs> the uh, actually actually the opposite is is what I truly recommend. Is I need some glasses, so, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, you don't have a telescope just or binoculars, sound... maybe open telemetry can help. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> it just sounded too easy, yes. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm all about the simple solution. Yeah. Um so, <laughs> so it's so really with the landscape, the thing that's good and bad about it is that it's everything's on it. That's the good thing, that's the bad thing. And what I started to get a sense for as I was uh, talking with a lot of end users and other members and folks in the cloud native ecosystem is what do we use for this specific thing? You know, say we want to use databases, uh, what might we want to take a look at? And what categories of cloud native projects are there? That is where the landscape really shines and where it comes through. Um, we've had one group of folks create the cloud native landscape guide, which is a lot more uh, uh, textually based. So it will actually walk you through and show you, you know, how do I build everything? How do I build my stack you know, do I start with provisioning, then runtime, then orchestration and management, and, and just kind of keep building on top of that? And that that is what is most helpful in that case. Um, taking a look at each section of the landscape, and then you can take a look at, so, you know, again, if I look at runtime, there's a subcategory of cloud-native storage uh, or cloud-native networking, and those are things so I can take a look and see, okay, oh, Rook, you know, is that going to help me out with my storage concerns? Let me investigate that project. I can see it's graduated. I can see, you know, it handles Ceph and some other things. Does this make sense for me? For me? No. And then you can kind of take a look at other projects within that space. I think that is what's most beneficial about the landscape. And then the guide is a really helpful way to kind of focus in on the different of the cloud native uh, landscape itself. I'm currently working on the CNCF uh, radar, which in the past has kind of pick and, picked a topic uh, by the community and then done a deep dive into it. The last one was uh, DevSecOps was, was the, the topic of focus. But um, looking at, you know, talking with the community and, and looking at what they want now, the, the, they want something that tracks these categories a little bit more closely and that allows us to have a more regular cadence in the radar and like, here are the workflows that people are using. Not focusing so much on the projects themselves, but what these projects unlock. I think that I, I hear a lot of people adopt Kubernetes and that is where everything stops, right? They've done it. 
They've adopted Kubernetes. We're done. That's that's not true. What does this enable for you? Does yeah, what, what does that actually mean? Better, adopting but... Kubernetes. That's uh, yeah. Um, I mean, uh, as you are probably well aware, there's, there's various stages of of, <laughs> of adopting Kubernetes. Right? <laughs> it uh, some people just uh, yeah, just starting with it. Some obviously, clearly, lots of organizations have been running it for many years, but it's yeah. Uh, I think the vast majority of the people are lagging behind runs a typical kind of uh, cycle like that. Um, Absolutely. It's no, it's so true. It's so true. It's I, one of my favorite tweets of all time. I, I, I always have, I, I remember it. And then when I jump on a podcast or need to reference it, I never have the link in front of me, but it's the, <laughs> Hey, Hey everybody. I, I I'm hosting my WordPress blog on Kubernetes. It's a picture <laughs> of the smallest box in the world you've ever seen on a flatbed truck and there's nothing else on it. Uh, and it makes me laugh every time because yeah, it's yeah, like, yeah. is is Kubernetes the thing you truly need? You know, I, I really encourage folks to to think about that. You know, I love Kubernetes. I've worked in the community. I've been a release lead. I've, it, it's something that I'm very biased for, but I, I really do get that sense of, you know, is this too big to do what you want to do? Does this, is this a good fit or is there something else that you need? I, I really truly feel like people need that realistic view of the problems that they're trying to treat, because then it's it's difficult That's, to you know get a good sense. Of yeah, what it's, 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 it's very true. I mean, you you have uh, clearly if if you look at it from a the technical side, fine, you're implementing Kubernetes, but if if the organization's working practices aren't uh, quite. Um, you know, doing those kind of ready cycles and the way they develop those apps doesn't fit in with that. It's just going to be this sort of, yeah, uh, it's going to just going to be another deployment platform rather than the whole purpose of, of um, cloud native is that you, your working practices are um, changed at the same time, right? Not from your traditional waterfall stuff to um, more agile development altogether. Exactly. And and within the cloud native ecosystem, you can, you know, say one thing works really well for you, say the CSI spec, you know, and in dealing with storage is really important for your edge components or your data centers that aren't in the cloud that are on prem. And so there you can use different facets of this ecosystem and you don't have to have Kubernetes to do it. Um, but you do have these interfaces in which to interact with things and that that I think is the true joy and possibility of everything here is is that you can you know you can you can swap things out. Things are modular for that reason exactly. Mm, let's, um, let's swap things out. Uh, how do you see that working in practice? It's uh, um, I mean that, just looking at some of the customers we work with, it's it's hard enough to get them to to adopt some some modern techniques and and technologies, but. Um, uh, then having them swapping that again after a while it seems a bit, um, yeah, I, it, it's it's just a kind of a, a bit of a, clearly the Netflixes and, and those kind of organizations are, are all, all geared up to, to work that way. But um, yeah, I, I don't know if it's more of a culture thing as well that, that people tend to be on the fence and once they've made a change, <laughs> they'll like to stick with that for a bit and, and not, it's, I mean, it's, it's partly because there is so much choice, right? So, um, yes, you may have uh, the option to swap, but then it's it's similar. You have to invest time and effort to see if, if is the alternative option, um, give me, does that give me the same functionality, et cetera, all the kind of things, right? It's, um, yeah, I, I, I've not seen 
I mean, it's the same as the the, the multi-cloud kind of promise, right? It's once someone has adopted a certain platform, they're <laughs> unlikely to change that quickly, um, I would say. No, that's, that's a great point, too. I, I, I absolutely have heard and worked with development teams that, you know, we, we've talked about implementing something, and it really is all about setting up that framework in which to work things through. I think that's the important mm. takeaway there, rather than, you know, uh, constantly swapping. If you are doing that, there might be, <laughs> you, you might have to take a look at your feedback loop and, and question, is this useful? Is this helpful? Um, I, I have heard folks uh, directly and indirectly, you know, like, I thought you knew what you were doing working in <laughs> working in this space. Uh, you want to switch again, you know. So I think that uh, choosing the proper abstraction is highly, highly, highly important on that front. Um, when I was working at HashiCorp, you know, taking a look at Terraform, where does like, okay, this sets up and, and creates my infrastructure. Where do I draw the line? If I use Terraform to spin up and stand up Kubernetes, um, and then I want to start using something like Flux or Argo. Um, do I just instantiate that and then start driving all of my changes in the cluster with Argo? So it's it's really important to make sure that you draw exactly where you want the line to be and where it's helpful. Um, organizations like Intuit, kind of like watching their Argo story. Uh, you know, I, I've got Argo on the mind because I'm I'm currently going to be attending ArgoCon this week. So a lot of examples to draw from in my uh, uh, in, in my memory right now, but seeing them having a self-service platform that allows their development teams to get up and running with Java and Node projects and uh, create this framework in which they can kind of spin things up. The inf- it allows the software team to do exactly what they want to set out to do, and that's write software. It allows the infrastructure team and security team to define those practices and the best way to create these runtimes for these applications and teams to be successful uh, to have the observability and telemetry and and identify and resolve problems quickly. I, I think that as we start to see all those things get built out, it's nice to allow teams to do what they're best at and not to kind of push all the problem space onto a group or a team that typically wouldn't have that. I, I definitely saw that at Disney when I was working with multiple development teams was there? there's definitely a need to be aware of and to understand things at a higher level, though when you start putting the responsibility of infrastructure on a team that typically doesn't manage it, it's it's really, to me, I think that's an unfair ex- expectation, right? Um, to, like, how did you not know that this would uh, bring the system down? How did you not know these various types of problems would happen? You know, it's because they, they haven't dealt with that before. So I think that's unreasonable to put the expectation on them. Um, and then, you know, same with the other way, you know, pushing software development concerns on infrastructure folks that might not have that understanding or that uh, that technical ability. Um, it's a good way to grow that. Absolutely. You know, I, I'm a big fan of being thrown in the deep end or, or going through the fire to figure something out. That's how I learn. Um, you know, <laughs> it's, uh, it's, uh, it's one, one way to do it as long as you don't get burned. <laughs> <laughs> it's it, I, I don't recommend it for everybody, yeah. but yeah, it's uh, it's. I, I also like vacuuming and cord uh, cable organization too. So there might be something wrong with me, but uh, I. <laughs> but uh, but yeah. uh, you know, everybody learns. Everybody learns differently. So differently, no, very true. true. I, I was going to ask about the the ArgoCon thing. Is how, so? How do you, how is that? This something that you're participating on uh, on behalf of the CNCF? I would imagine. Um, and yeah. if so, what is the role that you um, play there as an organization? 
so so with with ArgoCon and and with our other projects, you know, we've like uh, KubeCon uh, that's that really came about with with Kubernetes, and we're starting to see some other uh, co-located events that we'll have at uh, KubeCon, Cloud Native Cons. Start to see those spin up on their own, like seeing the uh, security group really just. There's so many attendees; it's a multi-day event. Uh, it's it's two days, you know, before KubeCon actually starts. So seeing that, you know, that that might mean that that's time to spin something out and focus, you know, have have a conference specifically dedicated to developers and security. Um, that's that's really our role is to help uh, foster those communities and be good stewards of those projects. And help the ecosystem evolve a bit, make that technology accessible and and reliable for for folks. So that's uh, it goes far beyond managing and taking care of the administrivia of the projects. Um, and we really truly see a lot of the good ideas come about from the conferences and people meeting face to face. You know, it's it's great that we are living in an interconnected world where folks can jump on a call and, and speak, but there is truly just that magic about being able to converse and interact with people in the same room, in the same space and come up with good ideas together. You know, it's nothing truly replaces that. We're able to get things done around invitation. I, I fully stand by that. We, we truly create the innovation and magic together. And we've seen that in examples of uh, one thing that we ran, Con Valencia was uh, this this past year, our EU event was a CTO summit where we talked about resiliency and multi-cloud. What does that mean? What are the challenges that you're facing? And we've gone ahead and released a report on that as far as what our findings were. And then this coming KubeCon, we're going to be speaking a little bit more about the culture. You know, what is your cloud native maturity model? And actually generate an asset that answers uh, through our discussions. uh, What does it mean to have adopted, you know, a, a proper runtime or app configuration and management. What, what do these things mean? What shows that you're just starting out versus, you know, I've got this mastered or I've set up a good system in which to get a feedback loop going on. So I'm really excited to kind of see what comes out of those uh, that event here in Detroit in October. But that's, uh, that's what we're truly looking to do with these events is meet with people, connect folks, and uh, the, the bigger that we get, the more that we're able to, you know, do this all around the world. Uh, there have been many groups and in, in countries like uh, uh, like the uh, LATAM region saying, hey, we really want uh, to, to work with y'all and, and create something here. And for those, we're trying to spin up Cube Days and, you know, either one day or a few day events that, that aren't as big as KubeCon, but do allow for that collaboration between folks that they normally wouldn't get to have. And that's another thing that my eyes have been open to working at the CNCF as well, is that most folks don't typically get that ability to to jump around to conferences and, and to other places. You know, most folks, as when they're working with the industry, they're staying in their respective locales and they, you know, that, that cross collaboration of cross country or cross focus doesn't really happen. That's what we're looking to break up and, and shake up and do in a productive way. Uh, that has been more than insightful, Taylor. Changing tack just a little bit. The I'm almost tempted to say recent events. I, just taking a look at the Linux space, for want of a better example, have at least in the enterprise space. I'm almost tempted to say I'm almost tempted to say three competing distributions. You have RHEL. You have used to have CentOS before IBM screw up, 
my words, I might emphasize, you have Debian, of course, and then you have something called OpenSUSE. When I take a look at the CNCF projects on the website, I do not see that fragmentation, fair enough. But on the other side, if I take a look at the history, for example, of container runtimes alone, you used to have Docker, you then Cryo came along, then Container D came along, all the rest of it. And then, of course, the OCI also has certain, let's put it this way, ideas about how a container ecosystem, just to, to stick to this example, should look like. What are your thoughts on a, I'm almost tempted to say, a steering role of the CNCF in that space? Or do you think along the same lines of the old adage of free and open source software, may the better product in terms of project win that has probably the better technology at its disposal? Any thoughts on this? I'm, I'm, of, of course, I am playing devil's advocate now, but I, I just want to hear your thoughts on kind of this philosophical question. Yeah, yeah. No, it's it's a truly a great point. I, I think that there's several uh, several facets to to answer that question, and I think that and you know this this some of it my my speculation and and just my personal thoughts, but other things I've seen within our ecosystem is we have a Kubernetes conformance uh, uh, program, and so if folks want to show, hey, I am running Kubernetes, it uh, it accounts for all of these test cases, we can show that level of completeness and resiliency to the community. And that allows them and gives them confidence in which to, say, adopt Kubernetes. Now, that's just one project specifically. Um, the, the other thing that really comes into play, I've talked with so many folks within the open source space uh, that have worked on OpenStack or uh, earlier communities, some in Postgres, some in Linux, others in kernel development. And the the lessons that they've been there in saying like, oh, I remember when we did this and it did become so fragmented or, hey, be sure to watch out for this. You know, there are so many uh, good folks that are sharing that knowledge of what worked for them and what did not work for them. And the more that folks are able to do that, that's, that is creating more stable communities and communities that are aware of, you know, uh, past things that have gone well, that have not gone well. And that truly helps us be successful. Again, I, I think that's the, one of the best things that you can do within any community, technical or not, is to share that transparency and that visibility. It's when you start to not be as transparent uh, that I think that you run into a lot of problems. You start to, you know, is this how is this thing going? Is this thing uh, working as well as, as I expected? If you don't have the answers to that question or ways in which to ascertain those or research them, that's, it's, it's difficult to drive things forward and you can kind of get caught up um, in, in all of the downstream effects of that. So I think that has been the biggest thing is that we've been able to uh, get insight from folks. Um, we have these programs in which it's easier and better, you know, e easier with an asterisk, you know, if it's, I, 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 tr I try to hesitate using that word, but because um, easy is a relative term, but it's more straightforward um, to, to have everybody come together to figure that out. I like using the analogy, you know, if we're throwing a party and there's just one person doing the dishes, then it's not really sustainable. It is, you know, everyone gets to have a really fun time, but it becomes a lot easier if we all jump in, you know, wash a dish, do our part or figure out a way to automate that process. 
And then we can kind of go about focusing on what we want to do, have fun, get together and, and kind of enjoy, enjoy that, uh, that theoretical party. But um, I think that's that's really important. And then our current leaders as well. I think that, you know, as we have folks working within the space of the Linux Foundation and the CNCF, uh, is are people perfect? Absolutely not. People make mistakes and there's always learning opportunities, though. These folks have been in this for such a long time. They have a lot of different perspectives. And they, when, when something starts to become a serious conversation or there's respectful disagreement from, from multiple sides of a problem or, or trying to figure out a solution, they are so quick to jump in and have a meaningful conversation around, let's, you know, let's scope the problem. Let's try to figure this out. It's not, um, it's not met with something that is like, no, I'm right. And then just, you know, kind of eliminate the conversation altogether. It's a, let's, let's listen to you. You know, we have, <laughs> uh, we, we, as my parents told me when I was little, we've got, you've got two ears and one mouth. So you should probably use your ears twice as much as you use your mouth. Um, and that's, I feel like what the foundation does very well is listen, 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 and then act on that front measure twice and then, and then cut once. That's an interesting point on 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 that um, subject of of listening and talking. <laughs> um, what do you um, how, how do you listen to let's say um, the the users of these projects or the um, your user? Well, I, I, I can't call it a user base, right? I mean, you don't have a user base as such. But um, how do you get input from uh, to the to your uh, organization uh, of of the work that you're doing, and do you do any um, kind of steering there or, or adjustments? Um, where, where is the uh, let's say feedback loop for 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 CNCF? Um, if we put it that way. So the this true secret to uh, the, well, yeah, not not so good secret because it's not a secret uh, <laughs> to CNCF's success is that each of the projects. Are, are maintained by various groups of people. So we help kind of unite and tie things together, but the CNCF exists to, you know, make sure that things are open and, and fair, that there are clear boundaries. And so, uh, we, so we can kind of help enable or make those connections at a higher level, but, uh, you know, it, we, we see it as giving these projects the strength in which to administrate and work within their spaces. That's what's going to allow for the biggest levels of success or if we see, you know, like, oh, hey, the Prometheus project is doing this thing to go through their issues and triage. This is working really well for them. Hey, Kubernetes group, why? Check this out. This might be of help to you. You know, kind of making those, uh, making those connections, sharing that information. So I think that's that's the place in which we can help out with with that. But um, these projects are, are very good and have their own entities mm, set up within them to to either you know be a steering group. Um, have a group that's focused on different facets of the project itself, and then, you know, to kind of ensure that they scope things well. Um, and then, you know, that'll get bubbled up to our technical oversight committee or governing board or or to, you know, myself, Chris Anacek, or Branka Sharma as, as part of the organization to kind of so that we can help out uh, and, and drive success for those teams as well. So really is just a, f- a big place focusing, focused on making those connections and, and being helpful where we can be meaningfully. Yeah. 
No, no, that's, that's I mean, an interesting point. I mean, the people that, uh, let's say, the, the technical committee or, or um, maybe in general, how many people do you have? Do you have enough people to cover all these? I mean, there's a lot of projects. If you're doing technical oversight, um, I don't know how, how in-depth you do this, obviously, but um, um, presumably the list of projects is growing as well. So, so uh, and are people doing this on a voluntary basis or do you have uh, sort of full-time um, uh, well, probably not employees, but people assigned to the uh, CNCF, or how does it work in that respect? Yeah, so so there's really three. There are three pillars of the CNCF. There's the governing board, and they'll manage like marketing, budget allocation, and those concerns. There's the technical oversight committee, and they 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 figure out the technical direction of the CNCF and kind of handle those concerns, like you said. And then last but not least are the end users, which inform these these patterns and source that feedback. I work directly with those end users and and that that pillar of the CNCF. And so I, I interface and interact with the TOC, but I'm, you know, I'm not the one uh, jumping in and doing due diligence reports and things like that. That's the, the wonderful projects team and uh, providing that technical leadership to our cloud native community. Um, those, those are folks that are, um, and, and they're all listed on the website too, but they, they're incredibly helpful in terms of showing folks, you know, what's, what's meaningful, what's helpful for getting that space. They, uh, you know, they're, all our time, you know, it's whether and, and these are this is all something that they want to do. You know, it's uh, I, I've not seen a situation where somebody uh, joins for a foundation. It's like you you have to do open source. And, you know, it's against somebody's want or dreams or, or desires. All these folks are so passionate about being here. It's truly their passion. All of these projects are their passion project. And it's great to see that um, as it comes to unlocking different different things within our community too. you know, sandbox review does take a lot of time, but the group has figured out ways in which to kind of roll through those various projects and establish a framework in which to, uh, you know, to take a look, to take a deeper look and suss out some of these projects. Are they ready? Are they not? Should this move forward? Should it not? Um, that's, it, it will become difficult the more and more projects that we get, but we can scale up the team and then they are doing really well at triaging these things as they come in today to kind of get through that volume that you said. That's absolutely true. I'm sure it's, um, not, not a, an easy task to do all this for sure. <laughs> Taylor, that has been more than insightful. Any final thoughts before we wrap this up? Uh, yeah, so I think that if uh, so, I'm I'm always big to I, I like giving a fr- a friendly nudge if you're kind of on the fence or uh, you're like you kind of want to get interested or started in open source or you have some questions about projects. I, I really encourage you. Please feel free to reach out, uh, and I'd be more than happy to have a conversation with you. Uh, connect you with folks that that are going to you know say you're interested in WebAssembly. I can connect you with those folks. Um, I, I'm here to help. Uh, truly here to help. And want to encourage you to either reach out to me or any of the members of my team. We all have open source on our minds. I think uh, uh, one anecdote is that uh, I'm sure that you know most folks have had one or two dreams about uh, you know their their work workplace. But uh, since working here, I think I've had four or five uh, four or five nights out of the week. I I dream about being at a conference, interacting with folks, uh, getting back to people. I'm not joking. And so I literally have the job of my dreams. And uh, really, really uh, enjoy getting to talk with y'all. So please reach out if you have any questions, and I'll be more than happy to direct you to the right place if I can't answer that question myself. 
living the dream by the sound of it. Taylor, I suppose that regarding WebAssembly, you also take questions beyond Rust, right? Yeah, I'm a bit rusty there, but uh, yeah, I'm working. <laughs> I'm working, I'm no, working no, on no. Donut I mean, given the fact, yeah, given the fact that I don't think there's a programming rusty. languages category. <laughs> <I don't know. laughs> given the fact that this podcast is is rapidly involved, uh, evolving into a Rust marketing podcast. No, I'm only joking. <laughs> no, I mean WebAssembly. I mean, I've been following this for the last year or one and a half, and the the strides and the and the, and the technology advances in this area have been just amazing. I mean, now people are actually running Python in their browser reusing WebAssembly, and that has been more than, wow, it's just amazing. I mean, people forget about JavaScript. WebAssembly is, is the next object. I'm almost tempted to say. <laughs> I think uh, anyway, people forgetting about JavaScript might take a while, right? I mean, it's widely used there. Yeah. The, the, only, the only drawback is actually that, that some people are already thinking about the next step in terms of really following the JavaScript rule and putting WebAssembly on the server, which may or may not be the right approach, but this is just my personal opinion. And Taylor, that has been more than helpful and, oh, sorry, insightful rather than helpful and interesting, <laughs> never mind riveting. What we do normally with our guests is actually, and also with our other episodes, is something called the poxies, as in the picks of the week. Uh, Martin normally refers to his adult entertainment websites of choice. I normally tackle movies and some other stuff, but really, no jokes aside, anything goes. So if there's anything that has crossed your path within the last two weeks worth mentioning, now is the time, and we normally take turns. Ooh, I like this. This is interesting. I I am trying to think. So so I have um so I I source I, I obviously I see so many links during the week and I've moved from Instapaper to Pocket is what I used to keep track of most of mm-hmm. my uh, emails or, or sites and, and articles. But um, I'm trying to think. I'm I'm just taking a quick look through here to see if there's any that that I've got my eye on. I oh. think I think. W- What's what's been most interesting to me lately has been the uh, README project from GitHub. I've really, really, really liked the stories that they've been sharing from the folks there. Um, I think that, that some really live close in my heart. It's it's the uh, GitHub README project, and um, I, I'm so sad that Stripe shut down their Increment magazine. That was also kind of like living in a similar uh, universe. Um, I, I also love all of the books that Stripe puts out, Stripe Press. Um, I think it's press.stripe.com is one of the most beautiful websites I've ever seen in my life. Uh, mm. if, if you go and get the chance to go through and scroll through that, it is phenomenal. Need to say people, links within the show notes, of course. Martin, uh, any any poxies on your site? Poxies, uh, well, it has to be... Um... Elizabeth II, I guess. <laughs> yes, of course. How could I forget? Martin? Yes, yes. Uh, we not. We still have another two hours, so feel free to mess about. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it, uh, royalist or not, I mean, someone who has dedicated, um, you know, her whole life to one job, right? <laughs> that's, that's pretty amazing. Whatever joy is, uh, yeah. Um, for that, um, it has to be my pox. Uh, 
in that case, let me mention two boxes. You're going to mention all of Schultz. <laughs> Megan, if you're listening to this, my heart goes out to you. You've probably made the right choice with kidnapping the, the grandson there and just uh, shipping him off to the US. But this is, of course, just my radical anti-royalist point of view. Uh, whatever the future may hold, I wish the royal family, and this is no serious because they're going through a hard time, very much so, and people, they're all human beings at the end of the day, royals or not. The strength that they deserve going forward, and I'm just talk, and I'm just not talking about the, the next couple of weeks, I'm, I'm talking about the next couple of years, because I reckon they will be, they will be tempting. Pretty much comparable to the time when Elizabeth II took the throne, she was very young at, at, her, at her age, but she, I think she did a grand job. <laughs> and that comes from somebody who is not exactly <laughs> one of the biggest royalists on the planet, I'm tempted to say. Uh, so the best of luck to the royal family and everybody else out there who is uh, suffering from a similar hardship at this point of time and in the future. My pox, my other pox is slightly different. I'm plugging actually your regional Linux user events as in community events. In contrast to the big ones like FOSSIM in Brussels, like the Open Source Summit, I think this is even run by the Linux Foundation, if I'm if not completely mistaken. The 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 regional ones have their own. I'm almost have to say merit, merit, never mind spirit. I was at a very kind of very cozy community event the other weekend in Kiel, which is really northern Germany, and also helped with kind of setting up the event, organizing the whole thing. And we're talking about probably 200, 250 people, 250, 250 people like this. So in contrast to, to scale, to open the summit, to FOSTEM, uh, where I think officially FOSTEM is about 8,000 people, but due to insurance reasons, the organizers normally keep it at that. But I reckon we are looking at much more closer to 10 or maybe 12,000 people over the weekend in Brussels. These are massive events, needless to say. Everybody goes there, more or less anyway. But the regional ones are important for a reason because they are much more familiar. They are much more kind of um, community-driven because it, the number of participants is, is smaller and you have a way better chance to network in comparison to the more anonymous, I'm tempted to say, kind of bigger events. So people, if you are on something called the internet and if you're interested in open source, I reckon you are because otherwise you wouldn't be listening to this podcast. Check out this cat video network, also known as the internet. And please go to these local events if you're so inclined and do, su and do support your local community. And this is my box for this week. And Taylor, without further ado, thank you very much for participating. Ooh. That has been thank more you. than interesting. And yeah, thank you so much for having me. My, our, uh, the pleasures are ours. And we're really looking forward to having you back soon to give us an update on the CNCF. I can't wait. No, it'll be fantastic. Thank you again so much. It was great getting to chat with you. Thank you. And uh, yeah, keep your head in the clouds. This is the Linux in-laws. You come for the knowledge. But stay for the madness. Thank, Thank you, you for, for listening. listening. This podcast is licensed under the latest version of the Creative Commons license. Type attribution share alike. Credits for the intro music go to Blue Sea Roosters. 
for their song Salut Margot, to Twin Flames for their piece called The Flow, used for the segment intros, and finally to Celestial Ground for their song Sweet Justice, used by the Dark Side. You find these and other ditties licensed under CC at Chimando, a website dedicated to liberate the music industry from choking copyright legislation and other crap concepts. Thank <laughs> you. 